I mean, uh, I think that secondhand stores should just be uh, replaced with state-operated uh, free stores where like the sure. state just goes around and is like, okay, you don't need something like throw it in the, we'll, we'll drive a, a, a specially painted, like a green mail truck past your house and you throw all your old clothes and shit in the green mail truck. And then we just give it out to people who need it. Well, the, that's what recycling should be. Not the fake. <laughs> yeah. Make yourself <laughs> feel like you're doing something about the destruction of the earth by con- Continuing to contribute to the destruction of the earth because we're just going to th- dump all this shit <laughs> into yeah, fucking yeah. landfills. I love sending off my my returnable cans to eighty percent of the time get sent to a landfill, but the other twenty percent of the time get sent to a processing plant where even more natural resources are burned in yeah. order to convert them back into like a reusable water bottle or something. <laughs> they're yeah. turned back into cans. Like- <laughs> yeah, they're just turned back into a sheet of scrap metal (laughs) and they're like all right more cans (laughs) it's always a good sign when your society hits a crisis point when other countries stop accepting your trash yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's the sign of a healthy society (laughs) i mean that's kind of funny though like that's like a very very direct way of highlighting like what imperialism is Mm -hmm. and does is like it's very similar to the relationship that like fucking trash collectors have to you know their bosses and bourgeois society it's like okay if you don't want to pay us what we demand we'll throw the trash in your yard (laughs) and other countries are like okay if you if you want to keep over exploiting us uh we're not going to take your refuse anymore (laughs) we're not going to create the great tasmanian garbage patch or wherever it is we send all of that fucking (laughs) shit that's a It just the whole recycling thing is just so frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's really it's a it's one of the most brilliant busy boxes that that the United States has come up with. Oh yeah, the whole thing carbon footprint was developed by BP back in the seventies or eighties or something. Like it's all well, every major thing that you've been taught about environmentalism for the most part has been a deflection from what actually needs to be done about the problem. <laughs> well, and, we, and like not to get ahead of us, cause we're going to talk about this in the meme review, but now we've got the new one with net zero. Ugh. What does that even mean? <laughs> no, exactly. That's the point. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. It, it's, it's a fake classification to be like, look, yeah, sure. We're not actually stopping carbon emissions, but we're doing all these things we classified as somehow having negative emissions. So that cancels yeah. them out, which is definitely how the atmosphere works. Yeah. And for every MacBook Pro that you buy in 2022, Apple promises to create a little terrarium out of a mason jar yeah. and let a stick bug live in there. <laughs> You, you Marxists clearly don't know dialectics because clearly if there is negative carbon then there and positive carbon, they equal out. It that's is right. that's, that's right. the science. It's just plus plus negative equals zero, right? Yeah. I mean everyone knows dialectics is just adding things together. That's that's right. It's it's really so simple. That's right. It's just making sums. It's all about the bottom line. And that's why the book was called Capital. Am I right? <laughs> Uh, and that's why this show is called work stoppage uh no relation actually i just needed a transition into the show
entirely listener supported. Uh, so thank you so much for your Patreon support if you give it. If you don't, that's totally cool. We love you anyway. If you're not in the Discord, though, that's utterly unforgivable. Get in there and look at the memes, for God's sake. Uh, don't forget to leave us five-star reviews wherever you can. We're all here today. We're discussing uh, ecology. And no, uh, <laughs> no, no. Actually, we we cut that from the script. Uh, ah, damn. We- <laughs> we are actually talking about uh healthcare workers barely not going on strike. That's right. Most of them, a, a, anyway. most yeah. of them. at the right, last yeah, minute it seems uh yeah, at the last minute uh the vast majority of Kaiser Permanente workers who were poised to go on strike in what would have been the largest or the second largest strike happening in the United States at the time uh, that strike was averted by a new contract proposal that the Kaiser Permanente workers will be voting on for the next couple of weeks, mm-hmm. is my understanding? Yes. Yeah, it's pretty considerate of them to not go on strike anyway. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, like, that's the thing. I understand that it's different because they hadn't actually started the strike yet. But that right, was right. one thing that, and we're going to get to them in a sec, but like that was one of the, the things that I at least, you know, one of the many things that I appreciated about the UAW workers was that every time they had a new tentative agreement, they're like, yeah, we'll vote on this, but we're staying on the fucking picket line until one's yep. actually approved. Fuck you guys. Yeah. Um, I mean, I understand there's a, there's a sense of urgency in healthcare, which is like, right. you know, it, you feel like an, a social obligation to the people you take care of, where it's like, if I can be in there treating patients, I probably should be. But uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that staying out on the picket line until the contract is completely ratified uh, right. keeps ammo in your in your uh, repertoire. Yeah, that gray line between essential worker and actual essential worker, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that and so Saturday, uh, the Alliance of Healthcare Unions, because that's one of the interesting things about the Kaiser Permanente workers, is that instead of having, say, like you know, these fifty thousand workers all represented by different locals of one umbrella union, like mm-hmm. you know, like the CWA or the S. EIU, it's a patchwork of a whole bunch of locals from different unions. And so there's this Alliance of Healthcare Unions umbrella group that represents them as a whole in their negotiations with Kaiser. And so this weekend, this is goes like kind of the same with the timing on the uh, IATSE strike, where like it was like within about 48 hours of, of when the strike was set to go, they announced a new tentative agreement, which it does from the from the what little details have been released because there haven't been a lot. It's it's mostly right. just some highlight points, mostly like from press releases from the alliance. But what they've mentioned sounds like they've hit on a lot of the big points, like especially considering how many of the strikes that we've covered cover this one big topic. They were able to kill the implementation of a two tiered contract system. So yes, yeah. so All if right. this contract is is ratified. Um, there will not be a new tier introduced and all the workers will maintain on the exact same tier that they've been on all along, which is that like, that's so important. Like, cause we've seen at strike after strike after strike, how many of these businesses that accepted that have used that to screw workers over and how like many workers in so many industries where this has been implemented mm-hmm. have just railed against how awful it is. So keeping that from going in place, that's definitely a big win. Um, and they also mentioned, you know, things like, 
This guaranteed yearly wage increases, although it didn't say how much. Um, Mm -hmm. There's no cuts to health care or retirement. And there's language in here. Now, again, the the, the details are what's important, but it says there's language in the tentative agreement to ensure safe staffing, which, as we've talked about with like like with the Mercy Hospital workers, has been consistently one of the most important demands of workers in healthcare, because while understaffing is a problem basically across the board uh, in mm-hmm. capitalism, uh, in the healthcare environment, like understaffing leads directly to deaths, like of, of patients and and you know sometimes of of workers. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, I mean the two- the the reason why it's really important to have that in in contracts is because the governments are not going to do anything any time. That any sort of government, like there are some examples of of like minimum turnarounds or like minimum rest time, I should, I mean, um, and things like that. But most of the time, those those legal obligations are very milk toast, not very uh, strong protections, and and like workers really have to fight for them in the contracts in order to actually create some level of hegemony to get even people who are not unionized to have some of these benefits. Not that it actually always trickles to, to those people. Cause that's not how exactly it works, but well, you know, yeah, it does I mean, help. The, the, the solidarity uh, dimensions to this have been like really worth just driving home because like the prevention of implementation of uh, a uh, two tiered system has been one of like the biggest focal points of all these uh, you know union conflicts that have been going around on around the country in interviews with healthcare workers and UAW workers in many of the different um, issues that we've covered on this show I've seen in the interviews one out of every three workers that responds like what do you want out of this contract they're like we have to abolish two tier this isn't some like academic like you know strategy that only enlightened like you know labor journalists understand this is like right. a rank and file sentiment that like people in the workshop know is fucking them and then uh, of course the other measure of solidarity we wanted to talk about is the workers who are not covered by this new contract the 700 engineers with the IUOE the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 39 who have been on strike already for two months and Kaiser Permanente just utterly refuses to negotiate with them at all and so uh, SEIU UHW has called for a massive two day sympathy strike this Thursday which is still on regardless of the current contract negotiations due to Kaiser's continued refusal to deal in good faith with these operators yeah I mean it says here that there are about uh, 50, 000, the 50,000 workers that would have gone on strike had the tentative agreement not happened are the people who are in line to do this sympathy strike right. which is a huge number of people and it would be really good to see this level of solidarity to see 50,000 people strike in solidarity with 700 workers that that is a that is a pretty awesome statement mm-hmm. yeah i i was trying to figure out why this doesn't cla- I, I guess it's probably cuz it's the same employer but i was wondering why this isn't classified as an illegal solidarity strike under taft hartley but it's not i don't know why but Regardless, I mean, solidarity strikes are good whether they're legal or not. I just, right. it was a, just another weird wrinkle. But yeah, like uh, these engineers have been on strike for over two months and they're just fighting for like, you know, fair wages. And and we saw when we were initially covering the Kaiser Permanente negotiations where they were like claiming that their workers are overpaid. Right. Uh, so th- like that was one place where with this new tentative agreement where Wage increases without a number can mean anything from, you know, 
an actual wage cut because if it's like, oh, it's a 1% wage increase, oh, great, <laughs> to like a, an actual like big wage increase, like in some of these contracts, like a 10% wage increase. But considering <laughs> the starting point was the company saying that they were underpaid, it does sound like the, you know there's been at least some gains in the new broad contract. But with these operating engineers, the the company has just completely stonewalled them. They've, they've refused to like listen to any of their incredibly, I mean, I say this every time we talk about a strike because like of the position, you know, labor is in, in this country, but like their demands are, are honestly, it seemed like less than what the, the workers even got in this big broader agreement. So the fact that they won't negotiate with these 700 engineers is a bit odd to me. Uh, but it's great to see the, the rest of the union, like acknowledge that like, yeah, so it's great that we have this new tentative agreement for the 50,000 of us. That's wonderful. But it's like those 700 workers are still your, you know, your union brothers and sisters and and non-binary pals. And so like you still have to stand up for them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it has a little bit to do with like that, that idea of the two tier system, because with the, with a nut, with a certain section of the workforce that has lower conditions, right? Uh, it really gives them a, a little bit of leverage to lower the conditions of the higher level workers at at, at the same time. Yeah, that's a good point. So, so these people doing this this uh, solidarity strike is really an, a continuation of the of the rejection of a two tiered contract. I yeah, think. absolutely. I think you're absolutely right that in losing the primary uh, proposal for a two tiered system that Kaiser wanted to implement here uh they're probably doubling down on other ways to divide out the uh the working people who who work at their facilities it does seem odd to me that they would specifically try and target operating engineers which i I had to look up what those even do they operate heavy Mm -hmm. equipment and and sometimes design and build industrial equipment um so that seems like the kind of industry where they you know if they continued to strike you wouldn't be able to like you know renovate any of your wings or fix your parking lot or do like critical infrastructure shit Um, yeah so it must really mean a lot to kaiser to to keep at least one group of workers separate from the rest yeah well and and that's one thing i don't think I don't think the like industrial level of a lot of the stuff that goes on in healthcare is usually mm-hmm. like considered because when you, you know, have complex, you know, equipment like things like MRIs and CT scanners and mm-hmm. even just like plants for making like compressed like oxygen and stuff like that, right. that's got a lot of industrial equipment that goes along with it and it's stuff that you can't just like train somebody to operate in like a two-hour training session with a VHS cart that you wheeled in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We 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 flash trained one of these uh, EMTs or like you know nurses assistants to operate the air pressurizer, and all of a sudden there's <laughs> right. a, there's an explosion in the east wing of the hospital. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, kudos to to the the Kaiser workers for you know understanding the importance of like even though these folks aren't you know, under the, the broad, you know, Alliance of Healthcare Workers umbrella, that they're still their coworkers and they still have to stand up for them. And right. this is the sort of stuff where there's this weird loophole that doesn't make this, you know, solidarity strike illegal, but we need more of these, whether they're illegal or not. Like, cause mm-hmm. these sorts yeah. of, 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 of solidarity, you know, movements are the way we're going to grow the labor movement. Yeah. Well, and I guarantee that as soon as the, 50,000 workers go on strike that the company is going to try to say it's illegal. Oh, absolutely. Regardless. Yeah. Sure. So there's going to be a threat 
Um, we'll see how that plays out, but I guess that's for a follow-up on another episode. Yeah. Um, uh, but we can continue with our follow-ups for now by moving to the John Deere strike that has recently ended because mm-hmm. they got a contract that they voted in, which is kind of similar to the contract that we described before with some increases to it. Uh, but there is a difference in the way that the workers were engaged while, yeah. you know, discussing mm-hmm. the actual contract itself, which leads me to think that maybe, uh, though it could be a sign that the there's a weakness in the union, it could also be that they're low on strike funds and they're worried about people being able to sustain themselves through this very long strike, but we should go over the details in it. Yeah, like this whole... I have a lot of mixed feelings about this story and it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's one where it, I always want to preface this with, it's like, we're not in the UAW. We're not on the picket line with the John Deere workers. And so like, they're the ones who voted for this. They actually had a democratic process, although we'll talk about the flaws in it, um, for, for ratifying it. And a majority did vote for the contract. So majority of the workers did decide they wanted to accept it. So I don't want to like delegitimize their, their, decision on that no it's but, already better than a uh, union action we'll be looking at later in the episode yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah uh but so on friday there was the now third tentative agreement in between the you know the uaw and john deere that that was announced this is after deere had stated that their second offer which was rejected was their last best and final offer they have then proceeded to change that supposed last, best, and final offer. So, uh, Wow, they seem so fierce, but when you <laughs> apply pressure to them, they just buckle like a lawn chair. I wish there was a, a, a catchy euphemism to describe that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They seem sure. so aggressive, like a, like a strong cat or like something. Like a big cat, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then for some reason, when you apply any pressure, it just crumples like a piece of paper or something. <laughs> yeah, but so one thing that so this the new tentative agreement is very very slightly altered and this is I keep saying tentative agreement but it's now been ratified. The new contract is right. a slightly upgraded version of of the second tentative agreement which was originally voted down. The primary difference being that there's an increase to the maximum that workers can get if they're part of the CIPP program which is a a performance pay like incentivization program that's in there and it's a really complicated like i was i was looking at some of the language that shows how they calculate it and it's confusing as shit like i don't understand how anybody's supposed to and i mean i I guess as i'm saying this i'm like well wait no it's written that way on purpose so that nobody can figure out how that it right. works. We've well, introduced a new uh, algorithm to determine meritocratic payments. Uh, surprise, it's a black box. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, and even if you do have a vague understanding, it generally comes from having been there, right. dealing with the right. system, like the general outcomes, but then as they shift, it's vague. Like, you know, I, I'm, I don't know if these programs, I mean, I guess the outline of it is in the agreement, 
Yeah, so but, I guess it will stand for long enough time, but who knows if they don't try and tweak it under the hood, you know? Yeah, well, and workers, right. I, I mean, during these negotiations I, in, in some of the reports that I read, like, workers were complaining about that program because they would point out that, like, because of the way that it's structured, you'd have two people on the same assembly line doing basically the same job who, because of the way this, like, it this performance pay is structured and the way that it's based around, like, your unit performance, you'll have Mm -hmm. these two people doing basically the same thing and they may do equal levels of work. They may do exactly as good of a job and get very different pay rates. So it, it, it makes that like, you know, figuring out how your, your job relates to your pay, very confusing. But the thing about this new agreement that I think is worth pointing out in the way that it was voted on, because this is, and this is as usual, mostly coming from the excellent labor reporting from Jonah Furman, Mm-hmm. was that unlike previous ratification votes where you had like big assemblages, you'd get your local together and you'd have like a lot of the, the members would be all in the same hall at once and you'd have people lobbying to vote for it. You'd have people lobbying to vote against it, people changing their minds, people coming in knowing what they want to do. This time they had people come in in shifts by like last name in very strict, small groups. So, and like... The fact that they changed that in between, you know, having two consecutive, you know, tentative agreements voted down to this one, to me, just speaks of the idea that the UAW leadership, who we've already we've talked about before, like uh, there's been several strikes recently that show the disconnect between the leadership and the rank and file. It really looks like the leadership really wanted this tentative agreement to get ratified and we're kind of done with the whole being on strike thing. And so they really want, it seems like uh, that they really wanted to make sure that there wasn't much of an opportunity for lobbying by folks who may have wanted to vote, wanted people to vote this ratification agreement down. And so by, by breaking up the voting process into these small groups, it limits the ability of people who are doing agitation in the, the the union hall to really affect that many people. Absolutely. I, I object to this, I think, for two primary reasons. One, just like you said, it's a further atomization of workers who are trying to operate collectively to ensure, you know, what they need for themselves and this kind of like very tight separation along arbitrary lines is definitely, um, I mean, it it just smells like an attempt to prevent them from striking down yet another contract proposal, especially one that is so really negligibly different from one they already voted down. And also the other reason I object to it is, uh, because my last name starts with a Z and, uh, (laughs) making people do things alphabetically by last name is just fucking unfair to us (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and so like i don't want to sound entirely negative about this it's it's a frustration with the process and i think Mm -hmm. that this sort of stuff really indicates that that rift between the leadership and the rank and file has not been fixed like throughout even throughout multiple rejections of these agreements throughout the you know the the expression of frustration from so many UAW members, not only during this strike, but also at the Volvo truck strike earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. And and so that's really the issue with it. But I think when we get into, you know, like the actual gains, there was still a lot that these workers won and they definitely made huge gains over the first tentative agreement that the, the leadership had agreed to, which they were overwhelmingly rejected. Right. So, like the new contract was ratified um, on Wednesday, 
with a vote of 61 to 39 in favor. So there was still a decent amount of opposition and like shifting from 55, 45 against to 61, 39, four, like that's, that's a big swing, but it's not as if like the small changes suddenly made it a unanimous approval. But, no, there were definitely like a lot of contributing factors happening here. Uh, and, and like you said, I think a lot of people in management at the union as well as at the company uh, just did not want the strike to continue. They wanted things to get like, quote unquote, back to normal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And th- again, I don't want to discount like some of the internal calculations. I mean, like there could be a, a strike fund issue. There could Absolutely. be like mm-hmm. like a sustainability issue that they're trying to get ahead of, though that also would not be something that they would talk about necessarily right. in public. For sure. Uh, yeah. Because you don't you don't bring up you don't tell people how much is in your strike fund if it's going low and you're just like, we kind of need to get this contract in here because otherwise we're going to stop being able to make sure that the workers keep their health care or something like that or, or whatever, right. you know? Yeah. yeah so- there are definitely technical considerations, uh, especially with a union as large as the UAW. I'm sure they're facing a lot of uh, multifaceted political pressures during right. this as well. But I do think that the, the change in the program does kind of make a little bit of a lie to that, that notion in that, you know, they could have still engaged with all of the members in the way that they did before and explained explained to them things like that uh right. or at least something similar i think that that would have been the better way to go about it if that were the co- if that were the cause yeah. so i don't know it's, yeah. i'm just trying to look at things as, as widely as possible yeah and and just to wrap up you know the the items that i feel like frustrated with about this process before we get into the the very real material gains that were won by this strike the other thing and and this could be definitely you know if, if there were issues with the strike fund and, keep, and keeping 10,000 people out on strike is not a cheap or easy thing to do. So mm-hmm. like that's, it's a monumental undertaking. So like, I don't want to minimize that, but I don't know when these workers are going to get a more favorable environment for a strike like this. And workers over and over again stated that one of the things that they wanted out of this strike and one of the reasons they voted down the first two tentative agreements was that while they got rid of the attempt to put in a third tier right. into the contract, the deer did not budge on keeping the two-tiered system that was already in place, and this ratified contract still has that. Now, like, it's, it's good there's no new tier to screw over new workers even more, but that, you know, two-tier system is still there, and essentially, like, over time, that's just going to tr- transition to, you know, the, like the lower level tier people eventually as, as folks retire out or, or like, you know, move on to other jobs, they're going to end up becoming, you know, more and more a percentage of the workforce. And that just eventually gives deer more leverage, but right. And, and, and we also, you know, saw all the reporting about how much this was hitting deer stock price. We saw like, I think something like, uh, like a 25% hit to their stock at at one point from this. So like, there was real damage like that that the the strike was able to do to to management and and to, I, I don't know it felt like they had them on the ropes but again like yeah. we're, we're I mean, not out on the picket line so if i remember right there was real damage to the buildings that management <laughs> yes. did themselves <laughs> yeah well that's the other thing is like they're they're like deer's attempt to hire scabs and 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 use use engineers as as laborers which is a terrible idea but like that didn't seem to be really working and but at the same time, you did also have 
mounting legal attacks on on the strike with multiple judges in multiple districts restricting mm-hmm. picketing. So, and obviously, you know, the tragedy of one of the the strikers being killed right. uh, on their way back from the picket line. So, there's a lot of factors here, but getting into what the the strikers did win with this month-long strike and and there are some big gains in here. The all workers will get an immediate 10% raise. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which is like, that's a big deal. They'll get an $8,500 ratification bonus. That's, that is over six years. So, you know, I always want to... Yes. I mean, yeah. It, sometimes the number can feel very big, and I just always would like to temper that, that ratification bonus with the fact that that bonus will not happen again until there is a new contract in right. six yep. years. Yeah, that, yeah, that's... But, yeah, I guess that's one of the it, other anyway, things. Anyway, I didn't want to interrupt too long. You can this is a six-year deal, but... They're also getting 5% raises in 2023 and 2025. There's improvements to the pension plan, and they were able to get cost of living adjustments back into the deal, which had been taken out. So like that essentially, unlike a lot of contracts, because you'll have the like you'll have a contract will be like, oh, well, you had a 3% raise in this year and a 3% raise in that year. But if there's no cost of living adjustment, you're functionally getting a variable wage cut in the years right. where you're not getting a raise. And so mm-hmm. the fact that that's in there, like that's that's a big win. A 10% raise and then additional 5% raises, like those are those are real material gains that are, are gonna help all of these workers. Like, you know, actually get more of the money that they deserve. And even even the performance pay system, which performance pay systems, especially opaque ones like this, suck and mostly serve to divide the workforce against itself. Oh right. my gosh. But That's but if the they're gonna dis- exist, you know It's one of the things that destroyed the first union that I was in because we were a, we had a uh, a commission system that nobody could agree on how to fix. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, if they're going to exist, at least they squeeze more money out of it. So, so that's something. So, right. And considering the original offer that the UAW bargaining committee agreed to had raises that were less than half this amount, like, that shows that, like, these were not just, you know, gains that, that Deere was willing to just happily throw out there. They were extracted by the the force of of these workers demonstrating their power so like i don't want to sound overly negative about this these workers made some real gains and they're going to benefit over the course of this six-year contract i just do wonder like and i think the 39 percent that voted against also probably wonder if they couldn't have you know stuck it out a little longer and seen if they could got rid of that two-tier system and you know. Yeah, or maybe got a contract that wasn't six fucking years long which <laughs> yeah, is kind of an insanely too. long contract yeah, yeah, because because that's the thing. <laughs> I saw some people in some of the articles about this being like, "Hey, we'll build on this momentum for the next contract." I'm like, in six years. Like, I mean, maybe they're gonna do some really intense sh- uh, steward training. And I hope keep so. People engaged, uh, you know, deliver petitions in the middle of contracts, things like that, like additional demands for you know, compensating new worker demands that maybe aren't covered under the contract, things like that are ways that you can keep that intensity up. But that is a lot of work and a lot of, of preparation and teaching of the mm-hmm. of the workers and the stewards. So yeah. I mean, I'm I mean, hopeful, but there, that's a lot. 
It's it's hard not to be a little bit let down that uh, a lot of the issues that were raised by this, uh, you know, not just within John Deere itself, but within the production, uh, automotive, mechanical and agricultural sectors of the United States economy just broadly are not going to be highlighted again in this way for six years because this had so right. many really great elements to it. It had a, a real driving home of like no unskilled labor. I think a lot of people think people who, you know, move tractor parts around a warehouse house or drive a tractor or you know fix tractors or whatever that they just know how to do like one thing and that other than that you know they're not particularly skilled it's like do you know how hard it is to work on a on a track on something that weighs like you know 25 to 100 times as much as a car right and has an engine in it as big as a car (laughs) (laughs) well yeah or something like a combine harvester it's like i'm assembling a thing that is made up of 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 like dozens of gigantic spinning blades (laughs) right yeah exactly (laughs) Like, this is, like, really complex, difficult work. And, and I mean, all labor is skilled labor, but, like, mm-hmm. this, I, I, as you're saying, like, I think this this highlights that fact. Um, and so there we, we got a quote in here from current and hopefully soon to be former UAW President Ray, Ray Curry, who said, quote, UAW John Deere members did not just unite themselves. They seemed to unite the nation in a struggle for fairness in the workplace. We could not be more proud of these UAW members and their families. And so, like, yeah, yeah that's absolutely true. Um, and I, I think to, to echo what you were saying, Lena, like, considering the rifts that we've seen in this strike, the Volvo strike, and, and, and other UAW demonstrations, I, I guess the, my biggest hope coming out of this is that not only will we see, hopefully, a, a more energized, more involved rank and file but a movement similar to perhaps what we've seen in other unions like the Teamsters and, and some others for a more democratic setup with the leadership and an actual like link between the, the rank and file and the leadership that actually, you know, where one is, is a representative of the other rather than right. just kind of being their own thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, speaking about a potential uh, gulf of understanding taking place <sighs> yeah. between union uh, leadership and union membership, we want to talk about the new IATSE contract that was ratified actually against a majority vote by yeah. uh, the majority of its members. Yeah, this is frustrating to say the least that that this sort of system still exists. Like, uh, the the example that you know we always bring up and I think is is the most glaring one and is and you know is, is the reason there has been so much upheaval within the Teamsters is how the Teamsters undemocratically uh, like the leadership approved the UPS contract that workers mm-hmm. are currently suffering under after a large percentage but not quite the two thirds needed under their bylaws voted to disapprove it but were overruled not nearly. Uh, so much of a margin, but yet again, this is another example of a major American union uh, undemocratically approving a contract over the wishes of, of its membership. So uh, folks are aware, as we covered, you know, the IATSE strike, the the big Hollywood strike was getting all sorts of really great coverage. Mm-hmm. There was big momentum around it. And then suddenly 48 hours before the strike was going to go, there was a, a big announcement. No, we got a tentative agreement. It's going to be great. And so over the past couple of weeks, 
workers have been, you know, IETSI workers have been talking about this, debating it, and then recently wrapped up their ratification process. And so 60,000 members of IETSI voted on this contract, which is about 72% of the membership, which is, that's really high turnout for, unfortunately, for for IETSI. Uh, I was reading a, there's a really great deep dive piece in the strike wave, which I've, I've linked in the Discord. Um, that goes into the history of IATSE's concessionary bargaining. That's mm-hmm. extremely good. It, it's it's a just a, honestly, it's a good piece for I think anybody who's you know paying attention to labor to read because it 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 gets you really into a lot of the same stuff that just ha- happened to a lot of major unions. But so you had these sixty thousand people voted, and you ended up with a final delegate vote of 349 yes to 282 no which i mean that sounds like you know a pretty solid win for the right. contract like that's it's you know there's there's a decent amount of opposition but you have a a, a solid gap of, of, of most people wanted to vote for it except yeah that's that, not really how it came down that's not really how exactly that's not how the voting went because the delegate system is basically the electoral college but in a union. And just as it's undemocratic in a political election system, it's undemocratic in a union election system because while a majority of the delegates voted yes on ratifying the contract, a majority of the members actually voted against ratifying the contract. A slim majority, yes. 50.4% of the votes voted no on this tentative agreement, including local 600, uh, the local of uh, Helena Hutchins, the, who was tragically killed on the set of rust. Mm-hmm. And yet, despite a majority slim as it may have been a majority voting against this tentative agreement because of the undemocratic delegate system, whereby if you win a local, you win every one of its votes. And so if you have different sized locals, that's allows the things to get distorted, they are, uh, you know, going ahead with this new contract. And so this sort of thing is very frustrating. Hamilton Nolan wrote a really good short uh, polemic, really, uh, against this sort of thing on In These Times. Because as frustrating as the Electoral College is in the United States, like, bourgeois democracy isn't real democracy anyway. So even if you right. didn't have the Electoral College, like, the way that that whole system works would still be set up to screw working people, but unions, the whole point of a union is that it democratically represents the voice of its members in their bargaining. That's the entire reason for it to exist. If it doesn't do that, then what, what the fuck is the point? Like it's not representing the voice of its membership. And now we have yet another case of that. And, and Alex press over at Jacobin has been doing a great job covering this strike. Um, her reporting has been a big source for this. And and she pointed out that this is very similar to a previous undemocratic vote outcome in 1989, where IATSE's leadership agreed to a contract after winning a delegate count, but losing the popular vote that essentially set the stage for most of the horrific conditions that workers were complaining about mm-hmm. in the run up to this, contract negotiation to begin with like the contract in 1989 which was approved against a majority of the membership ended double time pay on saturdays and sundays got rid of night premium wage differentials and ended the monday through friday five-day work week in exchange for a three percent annual raise and increased contributions to health care and pension plans <laughs> <laughs> wow a pizza yeah, party yeah, yeah. And, and like 
everything that we heard from workers, you know, in the run up to this strike about why they were so engaged with actually trying to fight for, for stronger concessions from the industry was we're overworked. We're understaffed and we're Mm -hmm. getting like driven into the ground to the point that, you know, you have people dying from exhaustion and it's undemocratic concessionary bargaining like this that got the union into this situation in the first place. And so it's so fucking frustrating to see the same exact system that created the problem continuing to subvert the voice of the membership that makes up the union. Yeah, and you hear this directly from the membership. There are some quotes in here from uh, Brandon Silverman, who is an assistant editor and a local 700 member who voted no. And he says the most disappointing aspect is that the delegate vote and the popular vote differ. If they were the same, it'd be easier to swallow. But a majority of our voting members voted no, yet the contract is still ratified. Uh, And he also said, you know, things obviously change over the summer and with the solidarity that was built through the locals. I think we're missing an opportunity here, both because of the rust incident and the overall growing labor actions throughout the country. If we don't reject and ask for more like 12 hour turnarounds or additional residuals from streaming, I understand where leadership is coming from when they say we can build on this. But three years is a long time and a lot can change. And he's absolutely fucking right. I mean, these are basically just boilerplate points about labor that we make on this show all the time. Long contracts are disruptive to organizing. Uh, having the opportunity to go after really important protections and then giving them up is is should be considered like a, a missed opportunity or a failed opportunity. And it's obviously quite undemocratic when you have like a large percent of, you know, over 50% of your union voting not to ratify a contract, and yet you still have to abide by its terms anyway. Yeah. And I think one thing that ha- should be obvious to folks who are like following these these strikes, because I think you'll sometimes see like people, you know, a- sort of apologizing for the concept of, of having these, you know, bureaucratic union leadership bodies that end up being pretty separate from the rank and file of like, Mm -hmm. well, you know, the folks that are out there working, they don't have time to really get into all the legalistic nitty gritty of the contract. And it's like example after example, after example, these workers know what's in their contract. They know Mm -hmm. like the details of this and they know how this shit's going to affect them. Like there is no need for this like bureaucratic body of like, people who aren't actually out there doing this stuff to like tell them what's in their best interest. Well, yeah. And I think that it's really belittling to the intelligence of the workers. It's often this sort of elitist attitude that leads people to those sorts of con- conclusions that, Oh, they just, you know, let's let the workers just work kind of thing. But in reality, these people are interested in their working conditions because it affects their everyday life. And if you really think that like, they don't know enough. Well, then that means that you haven't done enough organizing to mm-hmm. get them engaged and get them educated. This is, again, why we keep pushing for like really good shop stewards who are engaging with the rank and file on a daily basis, who are educating people and preparing them for actions. I mean, clearly, if this contract was not in the interest of, of, the, of the majority of people, and even if it is, you know, just a, a slim majority of the people who voted no, I think that it also has to do with a, la- a lack of, like, on-the-ground education towards the people. Because if the, if the shop stewards were out there t- talking to everyone about these actual problems that all of these workers are facing across the board in these conditions, like, I think that we would have even seen more people reject this contract. But I'm not entirely sure that there is enough engagement in this really bureaucratic 
system. Yeah, and we talked about this, so I'm not going to belabor the details. We talked about this last time we talked about the tentative agreement, but like there's gains in this contract for sure. There's, you know, increases to the pension fund. There's increases mm-hmm. to healthcare funding. There, For some of the lowest paid workers, there's some decent uh, raises, which is important. There's some reductions in the carve outs for streaming. So there's not quite as much of a free giveaway and in wages and and benefits on those, but there's absolutely nothing in here that addresses the problem of understaffing. There's nothing in it that addresses the problem of people being able to be forced to work ridiculous hours to, Mm -hmm. there's nothing in there like, Oh, now we guarantee a 10 hour turnaround time. Great. That's like, that's, like what I think for a lot of the workers, it's a one hour additional increase. And this is like, this is an industry where you, you have multiple people being killed due to exhaustion on the set. And you're chipping away at that by saying, Oh, we got you one more hour of turnaround. It's like right. and we yeah. increase the meal penalties that these places are still going to pay and still force you to work too many hours because a meal penalty is not anything that is, that doesn't mean Wait, anything to a this- production studio. Does this stop people from having to sleep in their cars? No. As I don't think it does. (laughs) I I think that that should be a pretty good metric as to whether or not the contract is doing what it should do. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and while it reduces the difference between, like, new media and traditional media as far as, like, the the gulf between the, the pay scales and stuff, it doesn't eliminate them, despite the fact that the new media is the dominant form of media now. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, trying to hide behind the fact that, like, this is a streaming service, okay, and they're still figuring out how streaming works. It's, like, <laughs> it, even before the pandemic, but especially since the pandemic, like, the vast majority of video content has been delivered to and consumed through streaming services all of the big news everybody watched dune on fucking hbo go Mm -hmm. or max or whatever the fuck it's called nobody went to the goddamn theater so hiding behind this is just like it's it's not only like pathetic but i think it's also just like a very obviously transparent uh move on their behalf yeah and and just to plug that piece in the strike wave again, which is written by a IATSE member who's, I believe, mm-hmm. a stagehand um, and, and went through the past like 45-ish years of collective IATSE bargaining to show like how this has, it's like, this is, there, there's, this has been a long time coming. This is a continuation of a long series of undemocratic practices from, from the IATSE leadership. And... <laughs> In their statement celebrating the new agreement, I'm not going to drag in a lot of this, but they had one statement in here, which I'm just like, man, if this doesn't tell you that it's a business union friendly leadership, like where they said, addressing the fact that so many people voted against the contract, they said, quote, we hear you, we see you, and we (laughs) recognize we collectively still have work to do to change the culture of our industry. That's disgusting. (laughs) Like that's, that's HR speak. Yeah. Like I don't want to hear that shit from my union representatives. Like Yeah, I don't need to be heard or seen. I need to be paid. That's you right. Know? Like, <laughs> yeah. like it's so dismissive. Like yeah. you're treating your your who the folks that are supposedly, you know, your union comrades like children by saying mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Like we understand Absolutely. you're mad. 
And so we're going to give you some, you know, nice language and you'll calm down and you'll see that we were right. Like, that's basically what that's saying. And it's, that shit just sucks. <laughs> like, yeah, but kind of to what, of, well, oh, to what you were just, just to finish off, like to echo what you were talking about though, Lena with the UAW strike, the hope for momentum to, to, you know, translate into future gains. There have been a, a lot of statements from different members of IATSE about their intention to do just that. Like they had a statement in here from Victor Buzzi, who is a sound engineer and a member of local 695 who voted against it, who said, quote, through this process, we have started organizing internally and between the locals. So that's a positive step. We need to be ready for the next big fight. And yeah. so if, if, you know, if there's one silver lining to come out of that, it does sound like <laughs> this undemocratic shit has, has really spun up as it should a lot of the membership. And, and so hopefully this will lead to a shakeup in the leadership and an elimination in the bylaws of this stupid undemocratic delegate system. If they do anything, even if they leave the, like, un, like the appointed international president who can subvert a lot of the, you know, practices, of the locals, they right. just get rid of the delegate system that, and, and actually make it a, a democratic uh, election system that would by itself would be a big win and so hopefully that's something we're going to see over the next couple of years absolutely yeah. well and speaking of things that suck uh yeah I, we can move on to our next story which is about uh hello fresh workers which is a uh industrial food manufacturing I mean, basically they make little little meals for uh people who are willing to overspend on on things like that. Yeah, they uh, make lunchables you have to cook and then they yeah. deliver them to <laughs> yes. you. Yeah. Uh they're they're looking to form a union and the repression from the company is immense. I mean, and the work conditions that these people are under are atrocious. Yes. I was just uh uh looking for and I'll and I'll see if I can't uh dig it up while while we're doing the report here of uh, the the actual like numbers of injuries compared to other similar industries but uh but yeah uh, i guess i'll let i'll let one of you handle this while i while i quick dig up that that piece yes. of information so this is primarily this story is primarily spurred on um uh, related to rather um so back in mid-september unite here filed for union elections to represent 1300 workers at hello fresh factory kitchens in aurora colorado and richmond california and if successful they would be the first unionized workforce in the growing meal kit delivery industry uh this is a company hello fresh that made over two and a half billion dollars last year and employs nearly twelve thousand people worldwide uh, and these workers have, uh, who are already facing low wages, dangerous working conditions, and strict surveillance by management, have faced one of the most aggressive uh, union busting campaigns we've seen so far on this show, up to and including racial harassment at the yeah. hands of management for um, having the gall to try and organize their fellow workers. Yeah, like I, I will admit, like I had seen some headlines about this this drive, but. It had always been kind of low on my priority list to put in the show because they hadn't got up to the election yet. And also mm -hmm. I was like, well, I hate these meal kit companies. Right. <laughs> like uh, the, there's, it's so much waste, but that's not the worker's fault. That's the company's fault. And once I actually read about this, I feel kind of bad that I didn't put it in the show notes beforehand because this shit is 
fucked. <laughs> like this company's regular operations were already screwed up before. And since the union drive started, have only gotten insane. Like Littler Mendelssohn is bad, but they're like button up, nice tie, corporate bad. Like right. the company that is running the union busting drive here is like frothing at the mouth, psycho bad. Yeah. Uh, like, I so, mean, it, it has like tech industry, uh, like just complete disregard for all previous working standards kind of energy to it. Yeah. So getting into the, like the background, the conditions that prompted these workers to really go after, um, you know, the union organizing effort and to, to try and be the first unionized workforce in this industry. Uh, just as an example, there was a worker they were talking to named Mary Williams, who's a 26-year-old uh, worker who packs the the boxes that get shipped out for people for this, who makes $15 an hour at the Aurora site, packing between 600 and 1,000 boxes a day. And her assembly line is supposed to be manned by seven people, but has been manned by four people for months because they can't hire anyone to work at $15 an hour standing in right. a freezer packing a thousand boxes a day. <laughs> and they're maintaining the same quotas they were maintaining for seven people with only four. And anytime that they have to take a break, they, it, in, in true Bezosian fashion, <laughs> right. like they, their, their supervisor basically pulls out an egg timer with 10 minutes on it and they have to go out, they have to take off all their PPE. They have to take off their, you know, like cold weather gear. Cause again, these are all refrigerated like workspaces. Right. And they have to go like in 10 minutes to a bathroom that may be on the complete other side of the facility. And, and, and this, this worker pointed out that she feels discouraged from taking water breaks because the burden of the quota system they're under then falls on the rest of her coworkers. And I'm like, that's not something you should ever have to feel at work. <laughs> like, yeah. right. And they've mentioned that multiple workers at both facilities are homeless because of how low the, the wages are because they mm -hmm. can't afford rent in either the, the Aurora or Richmond areas on $15 an hour. And that many of the workers, like in a lot of tailorized systems, suffer from chronic pain because they're doing the same motion over and over and over and over again mm -hmm. at this incredibly intensified rate without, you know, appropriate levels of breaks when, you know, when you're being timed for when you go to the bathroom. I don't think these people are, are, are this company is, is, is doing the appropriate level of, you know, take five minutes, do some stretches, walk around the sort of thing that you need to do to, to keep yourself from getting these repetitive motion injuries. Yeah. Well, and if yeah. these workers aren't being injured by doing the same quarter turn motion with a heavy box, 4,000 fucking times a day, they're getting injured by pallets, uh, full of plastic bins falling onto them. Like happened on June 16th, where, uh, an unmoored several hundred pound pallet full of bins, fell approximately 25 feet onto four workers, trapping them and sending two of them seriously injured in ambulances to the hospital for treatment. And the workers said this was the fourth time the, that a pallet had fallen in four months. So for the past four months, a, a life-threateningly heavy pallet had fallen uh, once a month. Right, and these are just completely unacceptable. These are examples of of what the the statistics also kind of outline a little bit, which I did manage to find. Uh, and the more perfect, more perfect union actually did this a little report on this 
the statistic, but apparently in Richmond, uh, California, where one of the two places where these people are unionizing is apparently it has 4.8 times the uh, injury rate as any private industry or as the private industry average. 3.2 3.2 times the transportation and warehousing industry a- average. That also includes Amazon. I mean, mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and 1.8 times the perishable prepared food manufacturing average, which means even in their very specific industry, they are nearly twice as dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it's a very similar situation to what you see with uh, Amazon's warehouses relative to the general rate of injury in warehouse work. And it really just drives the point home. Like, don't let tech companies open warehouses. Yeah. They should not be allowed. Well, and. In addition to all of these, basically, yeah, what if a disruptor, <laughs> you know, started a, a, a food prep company problems, you had during the, you know, peak of COVID last year, the Richmond facility reported over 170 workers having caught COVID-19 there, which made that facility the largest single outbreak in the entire county. This is where it and, gets wild. And as reported by a shipping department worker there, Alec Woodard, quote, an executive said they were proud the facility had the largest number of COVID-19 cases in Contra Costa County because that demonstrated the success of their COVID testing program. What? what? <laughs> yeah. That's just... Uh, that's that's not yeah. true. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like that's an indication of the failure of your COVID safety protocol. It's right. like, oh, we caught all the cases is not a good thing if you're letting the cases get that bad in the first place. Yeah, and I guarantee they didn't catch all the cases. No, absolutely not. No, <laughs> no way. Uh, yeah, uh, that that line that, just fucks with my brain. It's like, what sort of like. I hope that that you must have like some sort of I need a PR twist on this. There everything is a PR twist kind of mentality that you would have to even come up with that sort of conclusion. I it's truly yeah. like brain stopping. Yeah, it's the actual <laughs> level of the analysis on that one. Yeah, like we have we've talked about a lot of examples of like craven things that bourgeois ideology makes people do but that is just wild like to be trying to spin having the biggest single covid outbreak in the entire county is a good thing because you were testing people it's like oh yeah people our employees are getting sick and dying but we're aware of it <laughs> <laughs> like that's not a good thing motherfucker <laughs> like, <sighs> so uh. Anyways, to carry on with all of the many horrors of of HelloFresh, we have now, that's just, by the way, that's the stuff before the union drive started. (laughs) So that's the, you know, many things that very understandably pushed these workers to say, we got to do something about this. We need a union. But since that started, there has been, unsurprisingly, from a a company that clearly does not give a shit about its workers, They've rolled out a a union-busting playbook hiring a company called Culture Consulting, Mm. who... Culture with a K. Yeah. 
The only thing that's ever replaced a C with a K and not been racist is Mortal Kombat, and even it's on thin ice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so, you know, they're doing your standard stuff, like holding captive audience meetings and putting up all sorts of anti-union propaganda and all that stuff, but the, the way that this company is doing it is particularly egregious. And so this company has run anti-union campaigns at Coca-Cola and AT&T, and they also have a media wing called Culture Media, who spent basically all of last year during the run-up to the presidential election, like, spreading QAnon memes. And and I was looking at some of the examples, like, all sorts of these memes, like, celebrating violence against protesters and leftists. So, like, I don't actually know what their company is. Real culture with the K hours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, that's the thing. I I don't know, like, what their supposed reason for spelling it that way is, but I think we all know the real reason why it's spelled that way. It's Uh, a country, it's a company run by Deus Volt guys who don't want to make America great again. They want to make America England again. Yeah. (laughs) Or Germany. I don't know. (laughs) And so, one of the screenshots in, I believe it was, it was the, um, there's an article from Motherboard that I was reading about the initial union busting campaigns and they had a, and I put the screenshot in the notes because I, it would go in the we, meme review if it wasn't an anti meme. Right. I real. I feel like we actually did bring this we, meme up at one we, point. We mentioned it at one point, but yeah. I want to mention it again because this is what it was from. So this culture consulting, when they're holding their captive audience meetings and some of the, they, they had some of the slides from their PowerPoint presentation, which was filled with all the lies you hear in all of the normal union busting campaigns about how a union is a third party that comes between you and the company. Company and your paycheck, blah, 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 blah. But it was like more egregious than that. And then they tried to get extra clever by making a pro business version of the uh, classic, you know, organized fish. A oh. meme that has has been used forever where you have, you know, a bunch of scattered fish getting eaten by the big shark, which is the business. And, but the, the big fi- the, the fish all get together and they form a big fish and then they beat the, you know, the shark. This has been very lazily turned around where they just put a text label on the shark that now says union bully. And then it says in big red letters, don't let union bullies bully you into something that could cost you and your family. Just say no. And then it's got the union bully shark running away from the what 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 is supposed to be the organized fish. But it's now just a bunch of scattered fish all yelling no. There's there's so many things to take objection to in this (laughs) meme, but I'm just going to pick one that kind of got under my skin the most. The phrase union bully is not a real phrase. It's not a thing. Union thug is a real thing. Downgrading the severity from (laughs) thug to bully. Like what's now in 2026, they're going to be running union busting campaigns where they're like, don't let the union nuisance, the union (laughs) noid trample all over your office. Like, I don't understand. Like it's, it's like offensive and condescending and dishonest all at the same time. <laughs> I think it's because of the uh, the embrace of the union thug label that certain people have taken. I've seen a bunch of people being like, proud union thug, you know, like, of course, yeah. I'm going to be a fucking, like, <laughs> I'm going to be militant in my defense of the fe- of my fellow workers. Yeah, and I think maybe, like, pigeonholing union members that way uh, kind of, like, um, 
was uh, backfired after a while. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, also like uh, a lot of the time, people, the, the companies or whatever, will want you to think, well, like the only people who need a union are like a, a, a hammer swinging steel worker who, right. in his off time, is like a tough biking greaser, and it's like. <laughs> Okay, but we all admire that guy and want to be like and want to emulate him, you know? Like, so we should have a union too. <laughs> yeah, and like the only people people union like reps bully are the company, not <laughs> the workers they're trying to or oh no, I've been bullied into Uniting with my coworkers to get better wages, working conditions, and control over my life. How terrible. Hell, I mean, <laughs> honestly, even even in my early working days, uh, when I had no real class consciousness to speak of, maybe like an embryonic kind of back burner class consciousness, if you had just expressed to me like, you know who the union bothers? Your boss. I would have been right. like, oh, somebody can go ruin my boss's day for me? I'll pay for that. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I was gonna do that legwork anyway, so <laughs> I like that mentality. You know? <laughs> yeah, and and so lest anyone think that the hiring of culture with a K like consulting who run culture with a K media was just a strange coincidence. They just went for the cheap, you know, uh union consultant. They couldn't quite afford Littler Mendelssohn or something like that. Right, right. Uh just to point out some of the other conditions at HelloFresh, this is a company that employs like a majority of their staff are people of color, largely, mm -hmm. you know, black and Hispanic workers. And they there has been re report after report of racist abuse from supervision as well as, you know, like anti-union like staff there and there was a specific example here from a worker evelyn escobar who's a, a worker at the richmond facility who said that two HelloFresh security guards approached her while she was uh you know organizing for the union during her lunch break claimed that she was handing out pro-union leaflets during work hours and tried to to basically throw her out of the facility and get her to turn in her badge but right. thankfully her co-workers came to her defense and you know, we're able to stop them from throwing her out, which that's dope. But unfortunately, this same employee has also reported that and she's a, another you know, worker who, who packs these these boxes for shipment, mm -hmm. that there have been multiple instances where her her largely white management have like screamed at her for not packing things fast enough, calling her, quote, a Mexican shit. And then like mm -hmm. have there have been multiple like Hispanic, like uh, like Latino workers who have been demoted or had their pay cut, who happen to be organizers, and you know when it's been pointed out that like you know th there's no downgrade in their work output and there's no real justification for it, they're given the excuse of oh you your English isn't good enough for your job and we need a higher English proficiency so we can't pay you as much. Yeah. I mean, it's just racist right on its face. I'm sure that the actual insult listed in this article was probably one of the more mild things yeah. that was said to this worker. Uh, you just, it's, you know, you don't feel comfortable printing out and out slurs uh, yeah, well, in your labor reporting either. a lot of the time. I mean, and yeah. And yeah. I mean, the other thing too is like, so the Unite here is filing unfair labor practices against HelloFresh with the NLRB in response to this retaliation and discrimination. Uh, but also like 
whenever HelloFresh has actually like given the workers something that they've been asking for, it has always been accompanied by like utter disrespect and union busting stacked on top of it. The most obvious example uh, being that in the run up to the election, HelloFresh finally started providing workers with masks and hats after months of them asking for PPE uh, and warm clothing for the refrigerated spaces. And everything they received was monogrammed with messages telling them to vote against the union election. Which is like, I mean, I don't really know how else you could just like display like, we are bad people. We will try to fuck you at every turn. Even yeah. when we help you, we fuck you. Uh, then to then to even when you finally do give them something that you had to give them because you were threatened by a union election, you have to include anti-union messaging in the aid. Yeah. Well, and I, and I want to remind people if, you know, you're running into these situations where where you are being, you know, told that you can't do something that you know is within your rights, like, even if you don't have a state-recognized uh, union, you can still try to invoke things like your wine garden rights. Say that, mm-hmm. no, Absolutely. I, is this, is this going to lead to disciplinary action? I want a representative, I want someone there with me. You can't just unilaterally discipline me. This is, this is a union, this is about the anti-union activity, and and this is against the law what you're doing even if the protections are kind of gray in those situations you should still try to invoke them because it will scare them like they mm-hmm. they will they will take that as a as a real threat yeah and one thing one one of the rare Nice parts about this story is that I have seen on, on social media, like specifically on Twitter, there have been a bunch of HelloFresh workers who have shared largely through like Unite Here uh, and, and through More Perfect Union tweeting about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, some relatively amusing photos of how they altered the hats and masks to instead say like vote yes on the union and, right. and, <laughs> and stuff. So that was definitely good to see. But just the sheer contempt, the open contempt this company has for its workers is like, we know this is how the ruling class thinks about us as workers. But like when usually they try and hide it a little bit, like it's just wild. Like how open this company is. I, I just, this is now like become one of the, the union elections that I'm, I plan to follow more closely because I, I'm going to be really fucking disappointed if, <laughs> if they don't get their union because this company sucks. And like, sucks I for want a lot like, of reasons. I want unite here to take the, this company for everything that they're worth. <laughs> yeah. Cause these, absolutely. these workers all deserve so much better than what they're getting. Yeah. Well, in proper work stoppage fashion, we're trying to end on a slightly better note, uh, on, on the episode. And our last story of the day is about Burgerville workers who have actually reached a tentative agreement, which they have been working for for three years. Uh, this is one of the really, really interesting unions because they are the first like state recognized fast food worker union. Right. Um, and, uh, apparently, I mean like this reaching of the tentative agreement was, not only long fought, but also filled with like some pretty important concessions from the company yeah. that, that are, are really good for the workers. And and we we love to see especially new industries getting out there and getting some representation. Yeah, so this union uh, covers 100 workers at five of the chain's 40 locations. And this is primarily a chain in like the Portland area or the Pacific Northwest more broadly, um, I believe. So... 
uh, under this contract, which would apply to all employees system-wide, workers receive wage increases that are 25 cents per hour higher than Oregon or Washington's minimum wage requirement until the starting wage is $15, which is really badass, but also again, $15 an hour should is already low for like a federal minimum wage <laughs> and it yeah. should be 20 across the board for everyone in this country. Yeah. I've seen it, the anti-work people being like 25 or walk or whatever. I don't know yeah. about that movement right mm-hmm. now, but we'll, 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 I'll look more into that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, obviously like 50, as you're saying, like $15 an hour isn't the living wage basically anywhere in the mm-hmm. U S but, uh, for the fast food industry specifically, like the fact that they over the course of this fight, they were able to win these wage increases for all of the Burgerville workers. And that's the other thing that I think is is really interesting about this agreement. And this and, and folks may be have heard of, you know, this fight because of the fact that the Burgerville Workers Union, not only because they'll be the first fast like officially recognized fast food union in in the u.s but also because they've been organizing an association with the iww which is pretty cool right um but as you all were saying like they've already won a lot of gains just during the fight to get their union because they fought so hard to uh, against you know uh union repression and and attempts at, at suppressing their their union drive by standing strong against that for, as you said, three years, mm-hmm. they've managed to get these, these gains in the contract, which technically only represents, as you said, only five of the chains, but they've gotten these implemented, uh, company wide. And in addition to those increased, uh, wages, there's also tipping allowed in the restaurants, which is not generally allowed in, in, in most fast food, uh, places, and and has since it's been been implemented because it was implemented a couple of years ago has resulted in an average increase of two dollars an hour to workers' wages. So considering most tipped employees are paid the tipped minimum wage, which is basically nothing, these workers getting that fifteen dollars an hour plus tips is like uh, look they should just have a higher base minimum wage, but that is still a, a good perk that they won through this struggle. But I think the biggest thing that they won in this, like they got expanded sick leave, they got vacation benefits, they got five mm-hmm. paid holidays, they got paid parental leave. Those are all, and they're all fantastic. They're very rare to see those things, which should just be a human right. But you we almost never see those in, in the fast food industry. But this one, the big yeah. thing in this, they want a requirement to get their schedules three months in advance. Hell which yeah. That is, I've, you just don't see that in, in I, this sort of work. I don't you, think I've a, seen anywhere. it anywhere. No. You can actually plan your life with yeah. three months notice. You can make real plans and stick to them. That's a luxury I've never been able to afford. My whole life, based on my work schedule, has just been me telling people I can't make it to things. That's and right. If I could, if I could know three months in advance whether or not I could attend an event, my life would be silky fucking smooth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. And if you form a union, you have the ability to fight for schedules three months in advance. Hell yeah. That's yeah, and like o- Oregon actually, which this surprised me. Oregon has a state law which requires places to give workers two weeks notice as far as their schedule, which sadly is two weeks more notice than most people get. Yeah, but like that three months, like I I think that should be the highlight, like of this this agreement. That is a mm-hmm. huge win for for this industry, and and all of this 
pretty much is is all going to get applied like chain wide. So like my my like hats off to the 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 Burgerville Workers Union like organizers because like three years is a long fucking time. That mm-hmm. is a long time to be fighting for something like this. And so like these these are big wins and they're extremely well deserved. Yeah. Yep. I just imagine if you see like if you're going over the schedule, it's like two months away and you see a day where it's like two people working when you know it's supposed to be like five people working, you just like get ready for an action on that day. Yeah. You yeah. know? I mean, you know what, <laughs> like with a schedule that comes three min- months in advance, I would actually remember to ask for my birthday off. Right. Because I would get a schedule in uh, fucking like April or May and I would see June on there and I would be like, oh, right. Actually, I, you know, I need the 15th off. But like as it stands now, I'm usually so fucking like busy trying to manage my life around my work schedule that it's a week before my birthday before I even think about my fucking birthday, you know, and that's just that's like a, a, a frivolous example. But like, let's say you no, have regular doctor's appointments or, uh, you know, a, an annual family event that it's really important to you to attend or like a graduation or a marriage or something in the, you know, shit like that, like real important life events. And well, the other thing is like, not only does it give you that stability, but that amount of notice essentially works as a bit of a like bulwark against purposeful understaffing because they now can't just use that excuse of, oh, we didn't know. Sorry. This just came up. It's like, no, three months. You Mm -hmm. knew, you knew, (laughs) you had plenty of notice that you were going to be short staffed on these days, hire more people. Or you're not yeah. going to have you, – you, you don't get to just be like, nope, sorry, we're understaffed. you got to come in. No, three months' notice. So they, that is essentially going to more or less force the company to hire an actual appropriate number of staff instead of just running everyone ragged on mandatory OT constantly. Right. Yeah. I mean, this well, is the kind of stuff that we would have liked to see in a situation like the IATSE one, where a lot of these people are working the jobs of two and three people when these production companies should simply be hiring – twice and three times as many a production crew yeah absolutely and and to to wrap this up uh the the workers are are expected to be voting over the next couple weeks and and likely assuming that the workers are down with this contract uh expected to be ratified by the end of the year so we look forward to uh to seeing that absolutely congrats to the burgerville workers union your hard work has finally paid off well done. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yep. Um, so let's uh, let's give the, the listeners some payoff. Uh, That's right. Getting, getting to the end of the episode. That's and right. Head on over to the meme review. Head on over <laughs> to the meme review. This first one, I haven't seen this before. Do you know where the... Um, the base image for this comes from it looks, it looks like, like it's uh, from a comic book that's been yeah. that like i think the amazon thing has been superimposed on other jackets like i think right. that those those because it kind of looks photoshopped on at least yeah, on the, it definitely in the is. foreground i, I just, think this might be like cobra from gi joe okay Okay, that's what that's it kind of cool. looks like to me, but I could be completely wrong. <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, I I would know um, if I had made the decision to get into comic books at any point in my life. <laughs> but now that they're all blockbuster movies that fucking suck, I think I'm just beyond the realm yeah. of ever getting into comic books. Um, yeah, but this is uh, <laughs> this is someone up on a, a catwalk area in a warehouse 
uh, screaming through a megaphone at some you know workers who are staring down at these at these boxes or this man this production line uh, screaming increase production and there's a big banner on the thing that says to die on the job is to die for Daddy Bezos. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and and so everybody's got the big Amazon logo superimposed over whatever logo was on there. And I, I love the small detail they threw in there of on top of one of the stacks of boxes is a half filled piss jug. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can even see that. Yeah. Just oh, a nice little gosh. personal touch. Yeah. I guess, uh, yeah. In the spirit of all things work stoppage, I think our next meme is just really, just an <laughs> awesome, very simple meme. This one actually <laughs> made me belly laugh when I first saw it today. The, not a lot of memes are still capable of making me bust out in physical laughter, but this one did it. <laughs> yeah, so the, the caption on this one is, when a customer comes in six hours before your shift ends, and it's just Squidward standing there displeased at the register, <laughs> just like, oh, God, I six more hours of people being here? Well, well I just love the idea that he's just like, man, the audacity to come in <laughs> when I've only got six hours until close. Come on. Yeah. I mean, cause like you, if you've ever worked in service, uh, you, you felt the, the like righteous anger of having most of your machines taken down, most of your shit prepped for close. So you just have to do a couple things. And then some dickhead comes in six minutes before the doors are locked and orders the most complicated thing your facility fucking produces. Yeah, you you just like lose your fucking mind. And I love the the comic extension of this to basically at any point in my shift, if you come in and order something, you're an asshole. Yes. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I do. I feel bad if I go into a Starbucks or a McDonald's or a Taco Bell. Like I, I walk in there feeling bad. I'm like, these teenagers don't need my bullshit today. <laughs> they don't need to well, make me a spicy potato soft taco. Like, <laughs> that's the thing that's always confused me about like people who will like get their order and there's some tiny thing wrong with it, and then they make a big fit about it, and they or even if they're just like, no, I need you to fix this. Like if I get something and it's like completely wrong, I'll be like. Man, I don't want to bother these people. Yeah. <laughs> they went through the work of man, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, if I can still eat it. Like I don't have any food allergies or intolerances or anything, so I'll just eat whatever they give me. I get it if like you're, you know, you're vegan and they put like butter or cream or something on your food, you're like I'm sorry, I can't eat this. But just like be cool about it because those people are at yeah. work and you're not. <laughs> you're right. just fucking around. <laughs> yeah. And kind of in 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 a similar vein, there's this next one, which appears to be a meme installed in real life because this is a picture of it behind some glass. And it's it's what looks to be from from a distance, just a standard, you know, we got some some standard clip art on here. A, a we're hiring sign. We're hiring. We get a, a megaphone <laughs> yeah. yelling this in, in big block letters. Join our team. And then we got some of the benefits of working there. Work unpredictable hours. Earn poverty wages, miss important events with fan, friends and family for corporate profit. And then at the bottom, underlined, you are not a person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love how faithfully like this captures the spirit of a real employment ad. That's the main thing that like drives it all home to me. And it also reminds me of the phenomenon where people have been realizing that hiring ads in Germany 
contain what looks to English speakers like some suggestive text because apparently a common uh, hire, like we are hiring phrase in German employment advertisement is we are looking for you, which, tr- which is spoken in German as wir suchen dick, <laughs> which is really funny. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like that's just a, that's a great naturally occurring meme. <laughs> yeah. It's a bonus meme for the meme review. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our fourth one, or I guess fifth one for the, uh, for the day is actually just, it's just a guy holding the board and it says tag someone who carries one board at a time and <laughs> this is not a shame this is actually a glorification like seriously work slower like it goes back to the you know take your breaks because you know hard workers die younger you yeah. know don't yeah, throw out it, your shoulder just to prove you can carry more boards than the other guys on the site who is yeah. that helping the boss yeah cut it out it's the whole thing. It's work exactly as hard as you are paid. And for pretty much every worker in this country, it's one board not at a enough time. to carry more than one board at a time. Barely <laughs> do right. your job. That's right. <laughs> and then our last one is, is this Teenage Stepdad? It, it has it's got from Means TV. Feel. Oh, it's Means TV. So maybe. But uh, yeah, this is a... Uh, kind of almost like a magazine cover, but not yeah. in the eight and a half by 11, kind of more in a wider format. It's like um, your, uh, your tabloid cover basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's, it's, I was alluding to this early at the very beginning of the episode or maybe before we started, I don't remember. Um, but so this one is, this is in reference to the big, big climate summit that just happened where all the leaders of the Western countries came together and, put out a bunch of press releases about how they're definitely going to do something about climate change. And then Joe Biden came back and oversaw the biggest sale of land for, or, uh, space in the Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas drilling that has ever been sold. Very cool. And, and so this is a <laughs> reflection of that. And it's, it's the, the core image is a skull, but the big, you know, most of the skull is replaced with the, the planet earth with a, a couple of butterflies on it, and it's just captioned, Net Zero, the climate solution that doesn't curb emissions. <laughs> and then you've got, like, your little article headlines on the side of, go ahead, keep polluting, just, in quotes, offset it. <laughs> yeah. And plant some fucking trees or whatever. Don't worry, everybody. The oil companies have a plan. <laughs> yeah, it's I just, mean- their plan is to make it worse. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of that episode of King of the Hill where um, Strickland propane was going to do some kind of like environmental uh, yeah. initiative. And then um, it ends up just being Dale selling them carbon offsets and then not planting the trees, which has yeah. got to be the way 99% of offset programs work. Well, that that's, I mean, true on actually on their, their series on um, Tesla. Tesla. Yeah. pointed out that's how they got a lot of their money was selling carbon offsets to companies that then just go ahead and emit exactly as much or more as they were going to before. And then, you know, those, those offset calculations never include all of the carbon used in production of, right. you know, supposed green technology or the and resource so, extraction of lithium out of the damn ground. Right, exactly. And, and so Net zero has become the new buzzword of of like yeah carbon tax carbon offsets like minimizing your carbon footprint and it's like 
there are some people who use it in a completely earnest and well-meaning way and actually do have some, you know, plans of like, we're going to do carbon sequestration. We are like in the case of, you know, China and some other countries like Cuba and, and a lot of the, the countries in like um, the island countries in, in the Pacific who are, are greatly threatened by climate change immediately as uh, mm-hmm. like have actually done some things to try yeah, but, and, you know, but China is the only country big enough where doing something matters that right. has actually done something like every other major polluter, uh, like the United States, Canada, Western Europe, Australia has done f- fucking nothing. Japan done fucking nothing to curb yeah. emissions. Yeah. The, the offsets that these companies are using to justify their continued emissions and their lack of reduction. And in some case their increases mm-hmm. increasing production are, are like, it's, it's basically just tax evasion, but instead of it's, oh, we're stealing money that, so that it doesn't go to social programs, it's we're continuing to accelerate the destruction of the environment. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just green tax evasion. It's uh, yeah. economic uh, culpa- or ecological culpability evasion. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is no, like, it doesn't matter how many buzzwords they put around it, how many big fucking conferences they do, how many, you know, agreements that don't have any actual enforcement mechanism whatsoever that they sign. Capitalism cannot solve the climate crisis because it is premised on infinite growth. Like it, there is no way to maintain this mode of production and maintain an actual sustainable relationship with the whole rest of the planet. Right. It cannot be done. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that can be done, (laughs) is if you'd like to support us and things that we do, you can head on over to patreon.com slash work stoppage and throw us $5 a month. It really helps us keep the show going. And uh, if you also, if you can't afford that and you still want the overtime episodes, go ahead and hit us up in the Discord. The Discord link is in the episode description. Uh, So come in there, come talk to us, see other pieces of news that don't necessarily make it into the show. And uh, if you end up liking particular stories that we're covering, make sure to share it with your friends. Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod itself at Work Stoppage Pod on Twitter. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. Listen to Notes on the Crises. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. Keep antagonizing out there. How can I forget you?